I love church. I love church. Well, that's not what most people say when you meet them. Most people would not say that they love church. A lot of people would say that they hate church. A lot of people have been hurt by the church. There's a lot of sexual abuse and scandals going on in the church. So there's a lot of reasons why people would never say, I love the church. Many people, however, have been deeply touched by the church, and they would indeed say, I do love the church. The church has been a place where social justice has been pioneered, and and others have been helped in the name of Christ. And I just want to say, as we're starting a new sermon series called, I Love My Church, taken from the book of 1 Peter, There is your experience, your history, there could be your pain, Uh, it could be that you're getting a restart with church, but what we're trying to highlight from the book of 1 Peter is Jesus is the one who's saying, I love my church. The church is the bride of Christ. It's this wonderful union, this, this beautiful marriage. And so the thing that we're trying to highlight from this little letter of Peter is that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves his church. And we, uh, as as a pastor, I'm I'm hoping that, yes, indeed, we would be able to say, I love the church. I love my church. Uh, What we're going to be doing over the next five weeks as we go through this little little letter called 1 Peter is we're going to be looking at, I love my church, and we're going to be seeing that the church is a home. In fact, today we're going to look at church is home. And next week we're going to look at church is a hospital. There's a lot of sick people, we are those people by the way, and others whom we're trying to serve, but the church is a hospital. And then the week after that, we're going to look at the church as a mission. We're not just here to get comfortable and see how nice we can make it, but there is a mission that God has called us to. And then the week after that, we're going to look at the church as a stranger. We are aliens and strangers in this world. This is not our true home, even though we love San Francisco. And then lastly, we're going to look at the church is a citizen. We're a citizen of the kingdom that God has called us to and the one that he's establishing and the one that God is is building. So today, uh, we're getting into the church is a home. Let me, as way of background, give you a little bit of information about our author. Uh, Peter is the writer of two books there in the Bible, 1st and 2nd Peter. And he's probably the most relatable of the disciples of Jesus, meaning we can relate most to Peter probably than we can to any of the other disciples. Peter normally spoke before he thought. I can relate to that. Uh, There is a very famous time there in Scripture where Peter uh, is there with Jesus and Jesus is beginning to wash their feet. and, And Peter says, well, don't just wash my feet. Wash all of me. Give me the whole bath, head to toe. And, of course, Jesus was like, no, we're not really talking about that, Peter. But we love your heart. Uh, There was a time also uh, with with Peter where Jesus asked Peter, uh, who do the crowds say that I am? And Peter began to, you know, say who the crowds thought that Jesus was. And then Jesus looked at Peter and said, who do you say that I am? It got real personal. And that's what happens when we start interacting with Jesus is it gets real personal. It's not just what we think about Jesus or what we know about Jesus or what we've heard about Jesus, 
but it gets real personal. And so when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? It was Peter who famously said, you are the Christ, which meant Lord. You are king. It's not Caesar. Caesar's not king. Nero isn't king. It's Christ Jesus. You are king of all nations. We also know about Peter's weakness. Uh, It was Peter who denied Jesus three times. Uh, Jesus knew this would happen. Jesus, in fact, told Peter that that would happen. And Peter said, of course it would never happen. I would never do that. Yet it did happen to Peter. And so there's one of my favorite uh, commentators uh, writing about Peter. His name's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's a German minister. He was executed, actually, years ago for defending Jews. And he writes regarding the first and last words that Jesus ever gave to Peter, and it was, follow me. Follow me, Peter. That's his words to you as a church. Peter would follow Jesus to his own death. He would be executed in Rome by Nero, probably upside down, as history has told us, for his faith. Yet Peter, and as you're going to find out, if you haven't read the book of 1 Peter or 2 Peter, those two letters, I encourage you to read 1 Peter, you're going to find out that Peter writes with a, an unparalleled compassion and mercy in his writing. Why? Because he's experienced mercy from God. You can't give away what you don't have, and, and Peter has experienced mercy and compassion, therefore he writes with it. Because he's experienced it. The audience, this is, um, this, this is Jewish and Gentile believers. Again, uh, multi-ethnic coming together. It's, it's little house churches. It's in Asia Minor. And so this letter to this audience, it, it would have been a circulating letter. Peter wasn't there to give a sermon. He's basically writing a letter. And this letter would have been circulated throughout Asia Minor. Congregations are gathering. The letter would have been read. And it would have been a, a lot like a sermon was being given. But it was, but, but it was Peter's own letter to, to all of those people. Verse 1 of, of the letter there in First Peter mentions the names of all those places. So that's really kind of cool to look back and see those are real places. And that's exactly where that letter circulated. Uh, he, he, he wants us to know this because there, there's a lot of suffering that was going on in that original congregation in that first century. There was persecution that was happening. Um, there was a lot of suffering going on. And so in the letter, he's going to talk a lot about suffering. And he's wanting us to know modern day that even though we have medicine, and medicine is great, um, medicine can make us think that we can just sort of curate our lives and, and distance ourselves from all pain possible. And what Peter is trying to get at is there is a suffering that does and is allowed by God. It's very mysterious, yet through that suffering and because of that suffering, God is still good and uh, we are transformed more and more and more into the image of Christ, as mysterious as that is. So 90% of this audience uh, would, would, would have been illiterate. Like first century people listening to that letter that was being read to them on that Sunday morning. Illiterate. They couldn't read. So they weren't passing out copies of the letter. They were illiterate. And what does that mean? Why is that important? They would have been memorizing what they would have been listening to. Scripture memory was really, really key and important and should be now. 
for us. We should take great encouragement and a challenge from some of those first century listeners to God's word uh, to place God's word to memory, to hide it in our hearts so that when you're going through suffering or there's hardship or persecution or loneliness or fear, you draw on the strength of God's word that's been placed in your heart that you've memorized. So uh, today, we're going to look at two main phrases that show up here, uh, and, and one is born again, born again, and then the second one is to grow up. So let us read the passage together, and we'll say some things about those two phrases. Follow along here. It's printed here in your worship bulletin. It says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind, Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So as way of preface, when you're reading this letter, um, or you may be thinking of friends of yours that may be thinking about this letter, they may hate church. They may want nothing to do with church. Uh, they may be a total non-Christian not wanting anything to do with not just the church, but Christ himself. You may be a new Christian reading this book of 1 Peter, and you may be asking, what is the church's role in my life? So I'm a new Christian, I love Jesus, I'm just getting involved in the church, but what is the church's role in my life? And what is my uh, life's purpose and role in the life of the church? You might be rechurched. Maybe growing up, church was a place of pain. Maybe it was a place of abuse. Maybe it was a place where you saw abuse happen in the church. And maybe you got burned. Maybe you were on staff at church somewhere. So this whole experience is, is like being rechurched, reparented. Um, or maybe you're a mature Christian listening to this. Uh, and you're thinking, how do I help younger Christians grow in their faith, love the church, and help bless others by God's mercy that's been given to me. 
So the two things we want to talk about is born again. Born again. What comes to your mind if you've ever heard someone say that word or that phrase, born again? If you've read the newspapers, this is not good news. The newspapers hate this phrase, born again. And the newspapers, born again, typically means a bigoted, judgmental, hypocritical, power monger type person that wants to shove religion down your throat. We don't want anything to do with those born againers. Distance yourself from those born againers. They have an agenda. What are they doing? It's a big power play, so distance yourself from them. Uh, Verse 23, though, if you're following along with me and you're looking at verse 23, chapter 1, it talks about this necessity of this new birth. So I want us to define again, born again, and I want us to reclaim it. I don't want the newspapers to own what born again means. I want us to reclaim what born again means from its biblical heritage, where it fits in Scripture Uh, The two other helpful words that's going to help us define this phrase, born again, and one of them is salvation and one is hope. Uh, A summary way of explaining what salvation means is that God is holding on to you. God has, and we said this to Josue in his baptism, but God's commitment to you is greater than your commitment to God. That's what salvation is. Hope is you holding on to God. So see, there's a response that we have. God saves us and our hope is in God by us holding on to him. So Peter and the apostles here are explaining what they've heard from Jesus. Jesus is the one who used the phrase born again. Do you remember John chapter 3? Nicodemus famously asked, um, what must a person do to go to heaven or inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus said, you must be born again. Wow. Wow. And I love Nicodemus, the way he interacted with that. He said, what, am I supposed to, how can I go back into my mother's womb again? It's impossible. So what's happening here is that Jesus is giving a word picture for a deep, honest, profound, new life that has taken place. Notice that Jesus doesn't say to Nicodemus, you must try harder if you want to enter the kingdom of God. You must have a much better week this week than you did last week. You better try really hard at all the spiritual disciplines. You better try, 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 try. Rather, he says, you must be born again. And this is a work of God. And so look in verse 3 with me. Chapter 1, verse 3. How are we born all over again? Peter answers it. He says, God in his great mercy... It's God in His great mercy has given this new birth to you. It's by grace you've been saved. That's what Paul said in his letter to the Ephesians that we looked at a few weeks ago. You were once spiritually dead, but now you've been made alive in Christ. That's what being born again is. Look in verse 23 where it talks about a perishable seed. All of us have a mom and dad. All of us were born by that seed. Yet that's a perishable seed because it's physical. It's biological. There it is. It's physical. Yet this new birth, this being born again is imperishable. It's imperishable. What does that mean, you say? It can't be taken away from you. It means if you didn't have a father, 
You have a father now. If your father wasn't the best he could be, you've got a father now who's perfect. You've been adopted into this family. Your home is what this means. God is here to make his home inside of you by his very presence with you. That he loves you that much. That's what's going on. That's why in verse 3 it says, Praise be to, what does it say? Praise be to you, God and Father. Are you saying that today? Can you say that today when you think about being born again? Can you say, God, you are my Father? Because if you've experienced this, if you've experienced being reborn and, you, and you've been born again, that's how you talk. That's how you see. You begin to see God as Father. Not a God who's coming after me or a God who's keeping his best blessings away from me. But you begin to see God as Father who loves you and deeply, profoundly provides for you and that he's pleased with you and that you belong in this family. The second thing and phrase we want to look at here is the grow up. I don't know if you ever heard that growing up as a kid where your parents just said, grow up. It's time to grow up. And there were a lot of dadisms that I remember hearing my dad say growing up. I'll try to quote a couple of them here or remember them. He, he loved yard work. I mean, the man just loved yard work. And so he would tell me and my friends, many hands make light work. You ever heard that one? Or yard by yard, it's hard, but inch by inch, it's a cinch. You hear that one before? Or he would say, um, there's no I in team. Right? Or he'd say, uh, big team, little me. It's about the team. We need you to contribute. Uh, he also said another one, something like, uh, hey, be careful who you hang out with. Be careful who you date and who you go out with because she may put something on you that Ajax can't wash off. So dad had a lot of dadisms. And um, as we get into some of those dadisms, one of the things that dads and moms want for their children is, is for us as kids to grow up. It's just part of the process. And so when we're born again and when we have a rebirth in faith, guess what? Peter too is telling you, grow up. He doesn't do it harshly. He's not trying to do it with shame. In fact, he's saying, grow up in your salvation. Isn't it wonderful that Peter doesn't say, you better go figure out how you're going to get saved. You better be a good boy. You better hope you've done enough. No, he says back again in verse 3, it is by this great mercy that we've been brought to life. Now, therefore, grow up in that salvation. When you think about church as a home, this is a place to grow up. Not just come and let's see how many people we can get in here, but grow up in your faith. Okay? Verse 2 there in chapter 2 says, grow up in your salvation. So I want to talk about baby Christians. I want to talk about adolescent Christians and adult Christians. Okay? And I don't want anybody that's listening to this to, 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 to solely just categorize yourself into one of those three. Okay? because it's a little bit more complicated than that. At times, we kind of uh, go in a lot of different directions. Meaning at times, you may act like a 
baby Christian. Or there may be times where you're being very mature and you're being more like an adult Christian. But baby Christians, think, think about two-year-olds. Are two-year-olds here in San Francisco living in their own apartment? No, it's ridiculous, right? They're home. They're getting fed. They're pooping and they're sleeping. Repeat, repeat, repeat. There's a simplicity. They communicate when they need one of those three things. They need love. They need nurturing. They need assurance. And so the goal of these little cute little babies um, is, is, is to get their needs met. Look at verse 2 in chapter 2. Like newborn babies crave milk. So just as, a, just as a healthy infant is craving the mother's milk because God made them that way to crave it, so it says young Christians here are to be hungering, craving, thirsting for God's word. That's what baby Christians do. As soon as there's new birth, as soon as you're born again, what are you craving? What do you need? You need God's word. That's the sustenance. That's the caloric intake that you need as a baby Christian. And uh, we're called the table, church. And what that means is we will always be feeding. We will always be serving the gospel here. We will always be serving God's word here so that we can feast on that, all of us included. Baby Christians, adolescent, or adult Christians. And I would just suggest that um, if that's what you're doing, you know, uh, let's say you are a baby Christian, you're you're just getting started, I would say get into the Gospels in particular of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? First four books of the New Testament. Read those, reread those, memorize portions of those, meditate on those four Gospels there. Yes, take in as much scripture as possible, but if you're pushed for time, go for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and feast on those. Don't call this your parents' faith, and you're going to take it on their word. Um, Don't take it on the preacher's words. Get into the word yourself. See yourself as someone who needs that. Uh, Let me say to you also that you need to become a self-feeder. Right. Babies begin to learn how to feed themselves, right? Imagine having that 18-year-old child who is still (laughs) um, at breast. No, that'd be gross. But someone who constantly is just still needing you for for, for the simplicity of feeding themselves. So as a Christian, feeding yourself simply means, and and I would love to help anyone who's interested in this, and there are other leaders and people here in our church that would help others who are interested in this, but getting into the word yourself. That's that daily quiet time. I mean, we have a morning, midday, and evening physical meal. Why not a spiritual meal? When we're in the scriptures ourselves, feeding and feasting there, becoming a self-feeder. Okay, so adolescent Christians. This is that awkward transitional phase in life. Who remembers that phase of life as an adolescent? Some of us may be going through it right now. But it's that moment, that phase, that chapter in life where you're not quite where you want to be. You want total freedom. You want to be able to make decisions and do these things, yet you're not quite there yet. And so you want the privileges and responsibilities. And so some of the characteristic attitudes of being an adolescent Christian 
is to say something like, I don't need family. I can make it on my own. Think about how that relates to the church. An adolescent Christian says, I'm good. I don't need church. I'm fine. I got this all by myself. Who needs church? And they kind of drift out there by themselves. Meanwhile, sometimes accusing the church that the church isn't providing community. But it's this adolescent thinking. I don't need family. Or what an adolescent has told their parent, I don't need you. Where's my next meal? They say in the same breath. This is an adolescent Christian characteristic. Or they say, I only need you one hour a week. Or I only need you on Sunday, would be the application for the adolescent Christian. Or I only need you so that you can fulfill my dreams and make my life successful. Yet forgetting that you too have needs, and we all have needs. And how can we work through that together? Behaviors that flow out of these attitudes, we end up tearing down God's family. Right? you got a bunch of adolescents just like nitpicking and just kind of like tearing each other totally down. And that happens. That's what happens in a lot of churches. There's a lot of immature individuals literally tearing each other down. Um, and, he, and Peter, I, I love God's word for many reasons, but I love it. He gets here so specific. He, he lists these adolescent vices that divides and destroys church communities. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, rid yourselves. Rid yourselves. He mentions malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Malice. This is a desire to injure your brother or sister. Like you desire to do that. Being in that such of a low space yourself that to have malice towards someone is that you overtly decide to neglect them or hurt them. And that was happening, or there was a fear of that happening in this first century church that, that, that Peter's writing to. And he's saying, rid yourself of it. That'll destroy the church. The second one here is deceit. This means purposeful falsehood. Once again, being so low perhaps in your own identity that you've got to project a false image of yourself or others that's deceitful. It's not the truth. Peter says, rid yourself of it. It'll destroy the church. It'll destroy the home. We'll have a broken home because of that. Don't let that happen. The next one, hypocrisy. This is having a public face, image, but then in private, you got a totally different one. It's that two-faced person. It's that person that maybe comes home or is at, or is at, or is at church and says, ah, I love it here. This is great. And in their private life, they're over there uh, privately gossiping about the church or what they really can't stand about the church. Can you imagine that happening in your real home? Can you imagine that? Is that healthy? You'll totally destroy it. And the church home is just the same. Envy, he says. This is, envy is basically wishing better for yourself than you wish for somebody else. So that whenever they get the promotion at work, you really wish they didn't get it. You're envious of them. And this is your brothers and sisters right here. So, so when you see they're, they're good or, or them benefit, there's this sour displeasure in you because that happened to them. We would never say it, 
But inside, that's what we may be dealing with. Slander, he says here. This is literally evil speaking against someone. Whispering, disparaging comments about others. Slandering them. Maybe even meanwhile smiling at them. And there's a commentator that, that writes that taken together, all those things represent the kind of actions that make a loving community and home impossible. It's impossible. Try to gather as many people as you want to gather. Try, try to be as charismatic as you want to be. Try to have the music, the light. Get it all in there, right? But if you've got these things going on, it'll destroy the home and the church. Rid yourselves, he says, of it by God's grace. Okay, adult Christians. We'll move on. We'll grow up a little bit here. The first thing to say about adult Christians is to say that they too are being told to grow up in their faith. An adult Christian is not someone who has it all together, who knows all the answers, who isn't struggling, who didn't have a week full of doubt, envy, and so forth. The characteristic attitudes that would be different is that they begin to see that this indeed is their family. This indeed is their primary context for social interaction. Connection. Commitment one to the other. Not just hanging out together because there's some emotional connection together, although that's important. But there's a deep loyalty and faithfulness one to the other. Why? Because we're brothers and sisters We are deeply connected. We have the same spiritual DNA. We have the same spiritual parent. God our Father. Chapter 1, verse 22. So instead of there being pride in uh, a mature or an adult Christian, and by the way, that's their largest temptation, by the way, an adult Christian would be to feel arrogant and to feel like, well, they, they, they know already. They've arrived, they're mature, and the rest of you just need to hurry up and grow up. So their danger is having pride, and they need humility. They need to remember that they were saved by grace, and that they are able to grow up in their faith by grace and by mercy. So instead of pride, look in verse 22, it says, have sincere love for each other. Love each other from the heart. Do so sincerely, not because you're loving someone because you're going to try to get something back from them. How many of us love that way? Like we're loving someone, we're helping someone really because we're hoping they do that back to us. Verse 22 goes on to say, don't just tolerate each other. Love never gives up on your brothers and your sisters. Chapter 4, verse 8, he goes on. He says, above all else, love one another deeply because it covers over a multitude of sins. How can love cover over a multitude of sins? How is that even possible? You think about that? And it's it's that kind of adult Christian love that, that is slow to be offended is how. It's that kind of adult Christian love that isn't keeping a record of wrongs. That's how. And it's that kind of adult Christian love that refuses to meddle around and piddle around with tiny, really unimportant little things. Peter goes on in chapter 4, verse 9. He says, offer hospitality. 
to one another without grumbling. This means open up your homes. This means open up your heart. This means share your time without grumbling. And if you don't have a home, hospitality still exists. You don't have to have a home. You don't have to own a home to possess the gift of hospitality. Hospitality is not you cleaning your dishes and your silverware impressing people. Hospitality is you creating time in your schedule and in my schedule for each other. And sitting down together, making time for each other and listening to each other. So when we say we're brothers and sisters in Christ and that we're home together in this family, it's I have time for you. And you have time for me. And your story's valid and unique and special. Therefore, I want to hear it. Most of us have siblings, right? Growing up, you, you kind of couldn't wait to get home from school so that you could maybe watch cartoons or have your favorite snack. But what this means in the Christian family is I can't wait to meet up with you because I want to hear your story. I want to hear what you're processing. I want to hear how God's word is impacting you and changing you. That's what's going on in Christian family. Chapter 4, verse 10 and 11, he says, each of you should use whatever gift God has given you. This is profound. God has blessed you as a daughter and as a son with gifts. He has given you gifts. And then it tells you why. It says to serve others. What Peter is saying is that every member is a minister. Every member is a minister. It's almost as if on our church worship bulletin here, uh, you know, instead of saying pastor and the pastor's name, it basically should say ministers, plural, everyone. Everyone. That's what Peter's saying. That's what Peter means to be home in this family. You've been given gifts, all of us, all of you. Love each other, serve each other. Conclusion. In conclusion. He's telling us about being born again and growing up in our faith. And I just pose a couple of reflection questions as we think about this and close our time here. And it would be, what about you? What about you? Are you born again? To use that phrase. Are you born again? Have you received God's grace in that way that's been life-changing? Where you would say, God, my Father, has been gracious to me personally. Thank you and hallelujah. And the, the next question would be, are you growing up? Are you growing up? Are, are you beginning to, to thirst and hunger, literally, thirst and hunger for the truth found in God's word? And are you beginning to take those steps to be a self-feeder? Where you go there and you meet with God out of joy. This isn't some to-do or some guilt-ridden thing. It's God loved me. He adopted me into this family. I want to get to know him. I want to get to know my dad. So just let me encourage you that as as we pray right now. Just to remember the overwhelming love of God that's adopted you, 
that's called you by name and brought you into this family and has given you a rebirth and is by His grace going to allow you to grow up in this family. We are God's family here on earth. And one of our purposes is to love each other as a family, to love our Father, and then to bring others into the family. There are others. Let's pray. Father, we delight in your love for us as individuals, as sons, daughters. And we delight in your love for us as a church. God, we pray right now that you would speak to us. You would help us rid ourselves by this work of the Holy Spirit in us. Rid ourselves of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Thank you for your work of grace and mercy that moves us from death to life, causing us to be born again and now to grow up in your family. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.